And if you have a Bible, uh, then we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We've been in that book for a few weeks, and uh, we're looking at what it means for a people of God to be a people who co-labor with him and build with him um, and uh, a part of the establishment of this rule and reign and realm of God in the city and, uh, and in the world. And, you know, I used to totally love Six Nations time. I loved it because, you know, sometimes England were doing well, sometimes badly, but there was always good banter and, uh, and it was fun. And now it's just embarrassing and humiliating and um, it's just beyond a joke. So I got to the point, uh, having watched England play uh, Ireland, no, who were they playing? Scotland, last week. Last week they were playing Scotland. Two weeks ago they were playing Scotland. I watched it in Ireland with a bunch of Celts who were, honestly, I don't think many of them were on my team, <laughs> on my side. And it was just that kind of, and I was doing what I do, which is even when I don't believe it, I'm going, we're going to muller you, we're gonna, you know, watch out for the heavy horse that's coming at you. And, 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 and it was just pathetic in every way, shape or form. So I decided that I'd lived long enough in Scotland that I was totally, I was, I was done. I'm now, I have a kilt. So I'm now totally Scottish. And then, I mean, it's kind of like Scotland rugby, you can't throw it straight or catch the ball. I mean, I had all these chances yesterday. <laughs> and, um, and now the English were just, well, just embarrassing in every way, shape or form. And so I'm done. I'm now Italian. <laughs> I want to talk today about opposition. And, uh, and I, th- I think this is, this is not the kind of thing we often talk about, but actually it's, I think it's going to be one of the most significant and important talks that we do in this series because it's going to, be, it's going to highlight reality for us. And we're going to go, oh, that's why, and that's how, and that's how I feel. And it's going to deal for us with some of the, the ways in which we engage with the opposition that comes into our lives on a regular basis, and we're going to study the book of Nehemiah in that. Have you ever done any building? I mean, proper. I don't mean like IKEA construction. I mean, like, have you ever, has anyone ever done any building? You've done some proper, but like, like bricks and sticks and that kind of stuff. I, I, have, I, I have never done any building. Well, that's not quite true. I once, I once tried to build um, a brick um, barbecue, total disaster. No one's ever invited me ever. But I have in my mind that one day I'm, I, I've seen thousands of home improvement shows. You know, Grand Designs, My Dream, Derelict, DIY, SOS, Escape to the Location thing. You know, that, all, all that. I love them. And so I know about building. I know about subfloors and walls and drywalls and RSJs and tiling and all that kind of stuff. But I have never built anything physically. What I do know is this. It's tough building. Anyone who's ever built anything knows that you're going to face opposition if you start building. And the opposition will come in the form of planning permission, building consent, construction companies that run over time and the budget rises, rising inflation, weather schedules, subsidence. It'll come in every shape or form. If you're going to build, there's going to be opposition. And, uh, and the whole talk today is predicated on that philosophy. God is into building. He's really into building. He's building a people. 
When you read the scriptures, you begin to realize that his people are the crowning glory of his creation. People. He's into building people. The people of God, the people of Israel, are supposed to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He's into building his renown and his name. And in Jesus, he's building a bridge between God and people and people and God so that people might know God and people might stand before God. And he's coming across that bridge with healing and salvation for all of our stuff. And now, and now he's building a people for himself again. It's called the church. And the church of Jesus Christ, they're not just supposed to, we're not just supposed to flavor the world with the stuff of God or even illuminate the world with the message of God. We're supposed to also build. We're supposed to be part of God's restoration agency in this world so that his kingdom would come, his rule and his reign would come. And that's why we're doing this series. Because there's a desperate need to build. Because the walls of this world are down. The walls of our city are down. And people who are supposed to be whole and free and saved are broken and, and lost. And God who's supposed to receive glory through his people is not being given glory. And he's asking his people to build. And he's asking you to build. That's why we're teaching this stuff. In your family, he's asking you to build in the kingdom of God. In your finances, he's asking you to build. In your business, he's asking you to build. With your personality and your gifts, he's asking you to build. With the good news of Jesus, he's asking you to build for the broken and dislocated and lost and confused. And here's the thing that we know because we've watched DIY SOS. When you try and build, when you're attempting to do any kind of building, even spiritual building, you will face significant opposition to your build. And it's going to be bigger than a planning officer or an undelivered window at the right time. The opposition will come from every angle, from in front of you, from behind you, and from within you because you have someone who opposes you. Do you ever feel opposed? Do you ever feel like there's something that's a hope? Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't, maybe, but maybe even this week, your boss or someone who works for you or your kids or the people who live around you and, and all you're trying to do is to live your best and be your best and do differently and handle your money differently or love people differently or, 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 or you're just trying to do the right thing. You're trying to speak the truth and it's just hard. And sometimes it feels like almost hell itself has mobilized itself against you. And you're trying to live in a way that honors God. And so as we come to look at Nehemiah, I want you to understand that Jesus, one of the many promises that Jesus gives his people is this. It's going to be gut-wrenchingly hard for you. I mean, it's going to be amazing, but if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to build in the kingdom of God, it's going to be, the word he uses in John chapter 16 is the word flipsis. It means gut-wrenching difficulty. So if you want to follow me, you're going to have gut-wrenching difficulty in your life because the things of the kingdom of God are always opposed. And the more they are of the kingdom of God, the more they will be opposed, the more violently they will be opposed. And so let's, let's, let, this is not going to be polished or snappy. It's, we're just going to do some business in Nehemiah chapter 4 and, and see, because you know, the, the truths of these verses of Scripture uncannily reflect 
the stuff that goes on in our society, in our city, in our church, and in our lives, in our families today. And God gives us these things, not, remember, he gives us these things not as descriptive, but prescriptive. He gives us these things not just so that we can go, oh, that's interesting. He gives us these things so we might go, oh, so that's what we're supposed to do. That's how we're supposed to live. That's how we're supposed to posture ourselves, is it? So let's, let's read. If you've got Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going we're gonna to read. And this is, this is really important because um, if you do a, a flippant reading of Nehemiah, you might think, this is incredible. This is an incredible miracle. The walls of Jerusalem were down for 150 years. No one could build the walls of Jerusalem. This is stunning. Some guy who's never, you know, he's never got a degree in civil engineering or anything else. No one's given him a town planning qualification. He, he, he leaves his job as a wine taster, and he ends up building the wall in 52 days with a gang. And, and, and if you read it flippantly, you just read, oh, that's cool, isn't it? God is mighty, yay, and it's all going to be great. But, but when you begin to read it seriously, you begin to read the flipsis, the gut-wrenching difficulty of achieving the things that God calls you to do. Nehemiah 4. When Samballot heard what they, that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? (laughs) If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. And then Nehemiah starts to speak, and he says, Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuild the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. But when Samballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall of the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I'd looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. Let's pray and then let's teach this. God, we we believe this is your word. We believe that it's just as relevant today as it was back then. And you know we face opposition. You know we face opposition. 
And so we're inviting you to come, Holy Spirit, and speak truth to our lives that would change our lives. Because we need your encouragement in the middle of this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Really quick recap for those of you who've not been around the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, a, is an Israelite who's found himself, um, uh, like many of his countrymen, exiled and captive in a foreign land. When he gets a report from one of his relatives back in Jerusalem, and the report says its walls are down, and the walls being down is a disgrace. It's a disgrace for the people and it feels like a, a dishonoring of God and people are exposed to the elements and any force that wants to come in can come in and it, and, and it breaks Nehemiah's heart and so he gets bold and he travels about 800 miles from a place called Susa to Jerusalem around the Fertile Crescent and having no civic planning training and no leadership development, I don't think, and he probably doesn't even know what his Myers-Briggs is. He builds a wall in 52 days when it's been down for 150 years. Nehemiah's heart is moved. Put it, put it a different way so that we understand the dynamic that's going on here. When you get bothered, you get bold. When you get bothered, you get bold. And when you get bold and you articulate your bold, you get brothers and sisters who get bold with you. And then you get a band of bothered brothers and sisters. And when you get a band of bro- bothered brothers and sisters, you get breakthrough. You get breakthrough. And when you get breakthrough, you get backlash. They're all bees. It's really clever. I thought about it a lot. But, you know, honestly, when you get bothered, you get bold. And when you get bold, you get brothers and sisters. And when you get brothers and sisters, you get breakthrough. When you get breakthrough, you always get backlash. Let's, let's study in this because it's really important that you, if you're not getting backlash, you probably aren't having breakthrough. And if you're not getting breakthrough, it's probably because you haven't got anyone around you who's as bothered as you are. And if you're, if you're not getting bothered, you'll never get bold. And God is calling a bunch of people who will be bold, who will dream bigger than they're currently dreaming, who will go further than they're currently going, will take risks more than they're currently taking risks, will have faith more than they're currently having faith, because God gets hold of their hearts. If, if we only had chapter 3, we'd get the impression that this was a picnic, 52 days, isn't it? I mean, I'm just, just looking in your Bible for a second. So-and-so built this gate and this part of the wall and they did it and it was incredible and the wall got built up and it was wonderful and there was all this unity and we can talk about church unity and, 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 and it's amazing, but actually there is significant setback. So look, look, look. Chapter three, there's massive advance. Chapter four, verses one to three, there's setback. Chapter four, verses four to six, there's advance. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, there's a setback. Chapter 4, verses 9, verse 9, there's a massive advance. Chapter 4, verse 10 to 12, there's a big setback. Chapter 4, verse 13 to 23, there's an advance. Chapter 5, there's 1 to 6, there's a massive setback. And we could do this for quite a long time. Because actually every single time you take territory, the enemy opposes you taking territory. In other words, this. Your walk with God and your work with God will always be opposed there will always be opposition even though we know it was God's will for the wall to be rebuilt he didn't remove the opposition 
Even though we know it's God's will for you to be strong in faith and productive in his kingdom, God doesn't remove the opposition. Because, because if you respond properly, the opposition will drive you to dependence and determination. It'll drive you to dependence upon God and determination to continue to do the thing that he's asked you to do. So, so in other words, what we're saying is that the opposition is designed to stop you building, but actually it will help you build. The opposition is designed to stop you building because the enemy wants to stop you building. He doesn't want to see the walls up. It works for him for the walls to be down. But actually the opposition is left there by God to make you more determined, more able, more resilient so that you would build better. But if you're going to build better, you need to understand the opposition. You need to understand what is opposition and what isn't. So there is this guy called Samballat. He's the governor of Samaria. And look at verses, verse 1 and verse 7. He becomes furious and very angry. Uh, that Hebrew word means burning mad. It means he is, I mean, you've all got a picture in your mind of someone you know who gets furious and very mad. You know, they, they, he is burning mad. I'll tell you why. He's burning mad because he's inherently selfish. A secure and independent Jerusalem would threaten his hold on the area, undermine his control of the trade route, and hurt his economy. So he's, he's not burning mad because of the walls or because of something about God. He's just burning mad because it's going to hit him in the pocket. He's burning mad because it's going to, deal with, it's going to hurt his control. And so he drops his differences with the Ammonites, notice to the east, the Arabs to the south, the Philistines to the west, who will be natural enemies... And they're now all mad about Nehemiah because, of, because Jerusalem is going to threaten their lifestyle. Have you ever had anyone in your life that's a bit like that? You're just trying to do something that's good. You're trying to do, you're trying to do your best. And they're just mad and they're angry. And they're angry not because of everything that you're doing. They're just angry because they're selfish. Because they've got an agenda and they've got an idea or they're jealous or whatever it is. They're just angry and mad at you. And they're opposing you. Scripture tells you this, and your experience backs it up. Your life has an enemy, and your building has an enemy. Now listen carefully. You have an enemy because God has an enemy. You have an enemy because the stuff of God has an enemy. And the enemy works in two ways. He works institutionally, and he works personally. He works institutionally, so he is known as the prince of this world. So if you're taking notes, John 14, verse 30. He's the prince of this world. In other words, that, this, that means that this is his culture. Everything in this world is, is his culture. So of course it's going to be in opposition to the culture of the kingdom of God. So you're always going to butt up against the culture of the prince of this world when you're trying to live the things of the kingdom of God. And he works personally. And so he's called the accuser of the brethren or the accuser of the saints. If you're taking notes, Revelation chapter 12. In other words, he's after your life. He's after your God life. He's after the God life in you. He's trying to suffocate you. He's trying to, he's trying to pull you away from the good things of God and the kingdom of God. And our culture is subtly set up to remove you from the deeper things of God. And so we haven't got a lot of time here, but let me tell you where opposition comes often in your life. It comes from culture. It becomes, it becomes because individualism keeps you from community. 
So individualism is, is, is sown into our culture as a way of thinking that's perfectly normal. But actually, if you embrace it too far, it, it, it robs you of, of the idea that you, can, you actually need one another. We need one another to fully, to fully function as the people of God. Consumerism seems reasonable, but it's sown into our culture. It keeps us from participation. So if we just say all the time, feed me, look after me, do things for me, give me, give me good stuff, and we never participate in those things, we, we never participate in the things of God, and we become less human. Narcissism. It keeps us focusing on ourselves and not living beyond ourselves, and then we become less of who we truly are called to be. Secularism and relativism. They rob us of the concept and pursuit of God. You know, the, the idea that God doesn't really exist and the idea that everything is relative and there is no ultimate power or, or authority. It robs us of the concept and the idea and the pursuit of God. We're no longer hungry for God because God doesn't exist. We were created to know him, but we don't seek him. We don't search for him, and so we're empty and aching. And these things, all these things, enthroning our mind, enthroning our heart, enthroning our culture, they oppose us. And they oppose the kingdom of God. In our culture today, there is no such thing as transcendence. Everything is imminent. There is no such thing as anything bigger than us. There's no such thing as there must be God. Everything is, is imminent. Everything is need. Everything is temporary. Everything is in front of you. Everything needs touched. And, 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 and everything is instant gratification. And so because we are lost and aching We don't reach out for God. We reach out to be obsessed and to escape and to be entertained. And so sewn into our culture, millions of hours spent working through box sets and miniseries and scanning social media sites and gorging on celebrity gossip and downloading music and playing computer games and not asking deeper questions as to why we are where we are. And things take precedence over people. We don't ask about God. We don't seek God. We don't build with God. And that's why we're opposed. That's why the kingdom of God is opposed. And it gets worse. Of course, if you decide to wake yourself up, if you decide that actually these things are inoculating ourselves against life, we're not asking the bigger questions and we're not grabbing hold of life, if we decide that God has gotten hold of our hearts and we, 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 we wake up, then truly you begin to face opposition. Because truly then you begin to build and your building is an offense. Your loving people is an offense. Your speaking truth is an offense. Your having a big dream is an offense. Your serving a big God is an offense. And check out the forms that it takes. It's all here in this passage. And you'll recognize it. You'll probably be able to tick them off and go, I've experienced that. I know that. The first, the first, offense, the first form that it takes is mockery and sarcasm. This is big because it's huge in, in, in the Scottish culture. It's actually huge in a British culture. Let's not single out the Scots. It's, it's huge, isn't it? Our humor is mockery and sarcasm. And we kind of just go, well, that's, that's who we are. But actually, it, if we're not careful, it's totally destructive. So Sam Bala and his buddies, check this out. They, they gather within hearing distance of the wall and they ask a bunch of sarcastic questions. What are those feeble Jews doing? Question mark. Are they going to restore it from this? Can they offer sacrifices? Do you think they're going to complete this project? Can they finish it in a day? And, and I, I don't think it's stretching the narrative too much to, to, to hear all of the cronies and all of the army just laughing every time they, he asks a question. They're, they're playing a game here. And it's designed to undermine. 
everyone who's building. Then Tobiah throws in his sarcastic comment, if a fox should jump on this wall, this poor excuse for a wall, it would break it all down. Have you ever been mocked, ridiculed, to the point where it undermines what you know you should do? Who you know you should be? Either directly or indirectly, publicly or inwardly. I mean, who even are you? To try and change things. Are you, are you, are you better than me? Are you morally more, more pure than I am? Who, I mean, who died and made you the, 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 the moral police? In this environment. Jesus, Jesus heard this himself, didn't he? This is the way the enemy works. He saved others. <laughs> Yet he can't save himself. It's the same stuff. You know, guys, it is amazing what the opinions of others keep us from. Isn't it? It's amazing what the mockery and even in fun and jest the opinions of others keep us from. But listen, it's also amazing what confidence in our faith and in the gospel and in who we are can propel us into. It's amazing. Notice if, if, you, if you can't get you with cynicism and, um, and mockery, he'll get you with threats and intimidation. Look, look, the enemy gets more aggressive here. Nehemiah, now, Nehemiah's enemies had to be really careful because they knew that Nehemiah had the backing of Artaxerxes, the king. And, and they didn't want, I mean, they had some armies, but Artaxerxes was the man. So he didn't mess with Artaxerxes, and even if he had to come two and a half months to get there, he would get there and he would destroy you. So, so they couldn't do an all-out warfare against Nehemiah, but what they did was they used threats of violence. Look at verse 8 and verse 11. They circled around the Jews living nearby. Small bands of terrorists, I reckon, would sneak in and take off some people on the wall. And Sam Ballot would just say, I guess, to Artaxerxes, hey, it was a renegade band. Didn't have control over it. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you're experiencing this kind of opposition right now. You know, that kind of sniping of the enemy. Attacks on your business. And you don't call it the sniping of the enemy, but, but actually that's what it is. It's an attack on your integrity, undermining you. Maybe it's an attack on your marriage, on your relationships, on your parenting. Just the sniping, the physical threat of the enemy. Maybe it's on your health. I, I don't know. But, but I do know this. If you're trying to build, if you're trying to do the right thing, your enemy is trying to stop you. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the most important way you're trying to stop you is you're trying to convince you that it's not spiritual and it's not personal. I mean, it's just a business. That's what, happen, that's what happens in business. It's just a marriage. That's what happens in marriages. It's just parenting. It's kids. That's what teenage kids do. But, but actually, the enemy is trying to stop you living and building the kingdom of God. And, 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 and the one thing he fears more than anything else is prayer. Because he knows that will work. The one thing he fears you doing is rising up and saying, I am declaring that you are king over my business and over my marriage, God. And I'm inviting you into the center of it to deal with it and to help me live the kingdom of God. And if he can't get you with threats and intimidation, he'll get you with discouragement and exhaustion. How many of you are discouraged and exhausted by this sermon? <laughs> More hands went up. Apparently, there was a, a proverb 
or a work song. You know, if you you look at verse 10, it's in... um, it's in speech marks, and it's in speech marks because I think it's a proverb or, or a song. They sang this song. It's a pretty miserable song. The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is so much rubbish, and we are unable to rebuild the wall. That will encourage you. That's the song they were singing as they were on, on the wall. And I, let, me, let me tell you why they were singing it, because it was true. They were singing it because, have you ever been in the situation where you start a job, and you think it's going to take like a day, and you start the job, and you feel that like you've made no progress at all on the job, and the pile is still, is, and it's shoveling snow. For the last few weeks, I, I decided I was going to clear the drive. You know, I think this is going to take an hour. It, within, within like an hour, I had, I'd, I'd done like two meters, and the snow was falling. I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. Have you ever tried to get leaves off of a, off the grass and it feels like god is producing more leaves they're multiplying the leaves are more you know you start something and it just feels like i'll tell you why they they sang this song because because the enemy will attack at the halfway point of your vision you notice that i mean when you start a job everyone's got enthusiasm haven't they yes vision we're going to go for it let's go for this thing let's go after it and, and when you get beyond the halfway point of the job, you can see the end and you go, yes, I can see how this is. Have you ever painted a room? You start off thinking, this color is a beautiful Farron ball downpipe. Fake version from B&Q. <laughs> It's beautiful, and then you start, and, then, and, and it looks great, and then you get to the point about a third of the way in, and you think, why didn't I just employ someone else to do this? There's more paint everywhere, and there's loads to do, and, but then there comes a moment in the whole thing when you're about two-thirds in, when you think, I can see what this is going to look like, and you get this renewed energy to do this thing. It's exactly the same for everybody with faith and with spiritual vision. Isn't that true? You started off this thing, you came into the kingdom of God and you could not believe the good news that you received about the son of God who came to save you. And you were so excited. Goodness me, I now know why I exist and what this is all for. I understand this. And you can't help but you want to share faith with everybody and you read the Bible as if it's speaking to you all the time and you pray as if there's no gap between you and God and you're irritatingly evangelistic and you're just... And then, and then you notice the pile of rubble in your own life and in other people and in the church and, and, and it doesn't seem to go away as quick as you were thinking it was going to go away. And you begin to grow weary. It's the same in the church. You get a vision for church and you get compelled by it and excited by it and, and everyone's up for it and then 10 years in you go, well, it doesn't seem to be working exactly the way we thought it would be working and things aren't happening the way that we thought and there's so much rubble and, and it's difficult and it's harder than we thought and we're going to get opposition and some people leave and, and sometimes the church is actually the issue and your weariness leads to discouragement. I need to tell you that's part of the enemy's plan. It's what he's trying to do. And then he plays his joker. Notice the joker? Here it is. Verse 12. Negativism. Now this is really important and we're going to stop here for a moment or two. The criticism and mockery in chapter 4 verses 2 and 3 come from the enemy without. The negativity comes from the enemy within. So the Jews who should have been up for it, they weren't building, they were just watching and sniping and speaking. 
And they always had an opinion, and they always came in love to tell them the opinion. You know, the note, notice here, they lived near the enemy, and they were constantly exposed to his negative attacks. And they come, it says in the Bible, ten times they come. Actually, ten times is just a Hebrew expression. It doesn't mean ten times, it means like a hundred times. It means again and again and again and again and again and again, ten times. They just keep coming. They keep coming saying, we can't do this. We're going to get attacked. It's going to be miserable. You're not doing the right thing. You can't do this thing. We need to talk about this because this will kill you. This kills our culture in Scotland. And it kills the culture of church. A spirit of negativity is the enemy of faith. And it's huge and it's critical and it opposes the kingdom of God. And always saying, well, he can't do it. And we, can't, and we, we, we wrap it up as, as rational. And we wrap it up as conservative. And we wrap it up as, as a guardian voice. And we wrap it up in all these different ways. But ultimately, it's a spirit of negativity that says, I want to keep you less. We need to not speculate. We need to not go after these things. And it restricts vision. It truncates adventure. And it has a people living in less and lack. And we run around fearing deficit rather than chasing dream. And we pull people down all the time. We don't mean to, but we pull people down all the time. We cynically tell people that they can't achieve something and they shouldn't go after it. And that's a bit silly to try that. And and, and you're taking risks you shouldn't take. And, and, And we need people who speak truth into our lives. But we need counsel, not opinion. We need people who counsel us because they've been with God. And they want to help us and we call it rational. But so often it's just fearful. And, and what does the story of Nehemiah tell us? It tells us that we need to walk in the opposite spirit. Look at verse 13. It tells us that if we're going to build, and it's so important because the walls are down. People are being exposed. God is not receiving glory. The, the walls are, are down. If we're going to build, we need to fight for the dreams that God gave And not settle for less than what God gave. And Nehemiah says, I'm in a battle for my vision and a battle for my life and a battle for people and a battle for the glory of God and I'm strapping on a sword and I'm going to counter your negativity with positive affirmation. I mean, what, what would happen in an organization or in a nation or in a city or in a church If our posture and our hearts and our words were positively affirming, encouraging, and life-giving. I don't mean superficial nonsense. I mean reaching for the positive stuff before we reach for the negative stuff. I mean telling people that you love them and you care for them before you start trying to pull them apart. I mean saying, how can I serve the vision that God has given to you? Nehemiah says, remember the Lord. That changes perspective. And the final, the final thing the enemy uses is fear. This is a biggie. Fear is the culmination of all the above factors. Look at verse 14. People have seen the enemy's anger. And they've heard the mockery and threats. And they're worn out through exhaustion. And they're repeatedly hearing negative, negative, gloom and doom from people who should be supportive of them. That will kill you more than anything else, by the way. And Nehemiah said they were afraid. Notice that Nehemiah says this. 
Don't be afraid of them. Why does he say don't be afraid? I tell you, because they were. You don't need to say don't be afraid of someone who's not. Because they were afraid, and it's quite natural, it's totally natural to be afraid when you're being assaulted, when, when, when everything seems to come against you, when you feel like you're pushing two steps forward and two steps back, and you can't make it happen, and you're frustrated. The enemy uses fear, and they'll use fear in your life to tell you it's too hard to build, it's too hard to dream, it's too hard to run, and you need to shut it down. It's too hard to stand. It's a fear of failure, Maybe. You've never done it before and you don't know if you can do it. And, and, and the first thought isn't, I'll have a go. The first thought is, what happens if I fail? And so we shut it down. Maybe it's a fear of rejection. If I try it, if I go after this thing, maybe people will think I'm a fanatic and a weirdo and, and they'll, they'll, they'll reject me and I won't be part of the gang anymore. Or maybe it's a fear of lack. If I, if I speculate with the thing I think God has said to me, there is no certainty that we'll have what I need to make it happen and therefore I'm stepping out of the security of something I know into the insecurity of something I don't know. And is God really who I think he is and can he show up and do the things and therefore often we exchange faith for fear and we settle for less. Maybe it's a fear of conflict. If I do what God tells me to do, if I run with that dream, if I push it, then there are some people who aren't going to like it and some people are going to oppose it and some people who will tell me I'm an idiot and some people I'll just catch some flack. And so you back off and you live less than the person that God called you to be. Nehemiah reminds them. Do you know, he reminds them of loads of things in this passage, but he reminds them of one thing that is bigger than everything else. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Do you know, he could have given a whole bunch of, well, you need to walk in the opposite spirit of this, and you need to say this, and you need to do this. And, and he does some of that. He says, strap on a sword and you know, pray, call the people for the watchtower and make sure it all, we, we can look at that later. But actually, the thing that he says above anything else is, remember the Lord. In other words, change your perspective. He is bigger than all the fears and all the failures and all the worries and all the concerns and all the anxieties and all that we should have done this and we can't do this and make it happen. God is more than able with his person and his perfections to supply every need that you have according to his riches in glory. And if he's called you to something, he's going to underwrite that something and he's bigger than your enemy and he can help you build. He can help you build. See, the problem is the people, and it's quite natural, and you do it and I do it. The people had focused on the rubble and the criticism and the pile of leaves and the snowdrift more than they'd focused on the call of God and the person of God. And Nehemiah just says, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And then fight for your family. And then fight for the destiny. And then fight for the legacy. And then fight for the future. When opposition f- hits, and honestly you'll know it because some of you are in it right now. Some of you are in it because of family situations. Some of you are in it because of finances. Some of you are in it uh, because someone's come against you and said something. Some of you are in it for a faith thing. You don't really know where you stand. 
Some of you have a future in front of you that you're, you're, you're afraid to step into, but you know God's called you to step into it. When opposition comes, it's easy to focus on the issue and not to focus on the Lord. And God says, would you change your perspective? Would you change your perspective? And when you change your perspective, the opposition becomes incredibly valuable to hone your strength, to strengthen your muscles, and to remind you that the enemy is not so strong. And everything changes. Let's pray. I felt today that, um, that all we needed to do, all that God wanted to do was to give us a fresh picture of who he is. And a fresh passion for his stuff. For some of you, you are halfway in the project maybe even halfway in life and you're feeling weary and disappointed and discouraged. For some of you, you've faced significant opposition recently and you're wondering whether you can go on. And God says, I want you to remember who I am. I am the Lord of hosts. I'm Sabaoth. I'm Lord of the angel armies. I am your redeemer. I'm the one who wins things back, who heals and forgives. I'm the one who is your banner, the one who covers you. I'm the one who has all-seeing eyes, blazing fire. I see you, I know you, I understand you. I'm the one who has your best interests at heart. And fix your eyes on Jesus. God, we just invite you to come in these moments. And we invite you to help us fix our eyes again off of the problem, off of the rubble, off of the mess and onto Jesus. Onto his perfection and his holiness and his forgiveness. And we, we repent of the times when we have been these people living in fear and not faith. And we repent of the times when we have stopped building because of the noise around us and lived in fear and not faith. And we invite you to come, Holy Spirit, turn our face towards Jesus and fill our hearts with a passion for the glory of God. May that be our experience just in these moments.